We need it now I'm sick of all of this Hanging around Sick of sorrow Sick of the pain Sick of hearing Again and again That there's gonna be Peace on earth Where I grew up There weren't many trees Where there was we tear them down Say that what you mock will surely overtake you, and you become a monster. So the monster will not break you. And it's already gone too far. You said that if you're going hard, you won't get hurt. Jesus, can you take the time? To throw a drowning man a line Peace on earth Tell the ones who hear no sound Whose sons are living in the ground Peace on earth No, who's the wise No one cries like a mother cries For peace on earth She never got to say goodbye See the color in his eyes Now he's in the dirt Peace on earth They're reading names out Over the radio All the folks, the rest of us Won't get to know Sean and Julia Gareth, Anne and Breda Their lives are bigger than Any big idea Jesus, can you take the time Throw a drowning man alive Peace on earth To tell the ones who hear no sound Whose sons are living in the ground Peace on earth Jesus, in the song you wrote The words are sticking in my throat Peace on earth Hear it every Christmas time But hope and history won't rhyme so what's it worth? There's peace on earth Peace on earth Peace on earth Peace on
Welcome to great speeches and interviews on Axis Sacramento and The Voice. I'm Steve Lerman. Today's program starts out with 935 Lies and Media Decline. Charles Lewis is interviewed by David Swanson about uh, the lies of uh, the past decade. And uh, then after that, David Letterman talks to environmental activist Tim D. Christopher. And after that, David Swanson interviews Arun Gandhi, who uh, warns of, of World War III. David Swanson. I am delighted to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Charles Lewis. He has been an investigative producer for ABC News and the CBS News program, 60 Minutes. He founded the Center for Public Integrity. He is executive editor of the Investigative Reporting Workshop at the American University School of Communication, and he is the author of a great new book I have recently read called 935 Lies, The Future of Truth and the Decline of America's moral integrity. Chuck Lewis, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. I'm uh, struck by the idea of a decline in America's moral integrity um, <laughs> because here is a nation built on slavery and war and genocide. Uh, you'd, you'd think we almost have to be gaining in moral integrity, <laughs> uh, but you seem to have documented pretty well a decline, at least in the past half century or so. Can you can you Give the general outlines of what you're what you're pointing to. Uh, well, no, you make an excellent point about the the sordid history that goes back centuries, and I guess you know it, it feels like there's been a decline even since the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, but I, I, you know, what was the good part of <laughs> the, the moral integrity? Uh, there, there have been issues, as we both know, in the U.S. for many many years. So, but uh, I think well, it started with uh, my my and many Americans' experience with the Iraq War, where it turned out there was no there there. Uh, the weapons of mass destruction uh, rationale for war simply was not true and turned out to not be true. And I wrote the book because I noticed that close to 60% of the public still thought it was true about a year after we had been told, even by the president himself, that there were no weapons in Iraq. Uh, and, and, and so that got me thinking about the larger pattern going back many, many years. And everywhere I looked, I mean, in my own lifetime, that I had always pondered. And so it, it, it did fit suddenly an image of sort of wholesale consistent uh, misrepresentations uh, by those in power and, and really closely looking. It was government and major corporations. Uh, and again, I had known, obviously, elements of this here and there, but when you look at it cumulatively, it's a rather stunning array of untruths. And then you start to wonder, do we have any grasp whatsoever on today, this moment, and the future? And the, the ramifications are extremely sobering. You know, I had very, very intelligent, educated people swear to me that the Iraq War in 2003 was the first war that a U.S. government had lied about. And, and, and I knew enough to think that might not quite be right. I'd heard about the Maine and the Lusitania. And, and I went and I looked through every war uh, in, the, in history that I could find of this country and every other country. And I couldn't find one that hadn't been substantially lied about. I mean, was there, was there a, a, an age when that was different? Probably not. I mean, uh, in my, one of my early drafts of the manuscripts, um, I went back to the decimation of the Carthaginians by the Romans in 
whatever that is, a thousand or two thousand years ago. Salt and, in the ground, and yeah, and and basically the the they they asked the Carthaginians to lay down their arms and uh, that they would be peaceful, and and they had the meanwhile the Roman Senate had voted to to order their armies to go uh, decimate the people and enslave seventy five thousand of them, etc. All that had been ordered days, weeks earlier, but no one in Carthage knew it. So I think war, you know, there's a wonderful book by Philip Knightley, the great uh, investigative journalist uh, yeah. in Britain, uh, who wrote The First Casualty. It's a great book about truth and war, going back really to the beginning of human history, showing how whenever war is waged, uh, truth is in short supply, shall we say. Um, and, and, and it's a great, famous quote by a Senator Hiram Johnson back around 100 years ago that the first casualty of war is truth. And I think that's basically right as far as I can tell. I'm not an expert on all the wars, but it sure, sure seems like there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. The big difference may have been the quickly and demonstrably refutable claims that were used in the case of that war, and the, the weapons that weren't there. You also do a good job, I think, of documenting a, a, a serious decline, if not in government integrity, uh, particularly in media integrity. And I, I've been watching these protests in Hong Kong on U.S. media, and, and I, I've always had this fantasy that the U.S. media would cover a protest but it always seems to be in some foreign country when they do, uh, and, and uh, some foreign country that the U.S. government happens to wish were protested. Would today's U.S. media even cover the civil rights movement in the U.S. South or, the, or show the Vietnam War in the way that it did at the time? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I was appalled in 2004 when thousands of people were prevented from demonstrating in New York City in the name of security, and any demonstrators were put in penned areas away from, there were literally thousands arrested, which uh, there was litigation later, and basically there was a settlement, meaning they kind of knew they were doing that. Yeah, they uh, finally just got a bunch yeah, of money. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, there, yes, there is a, a significant problem here um, with demonstrating and uh, in a number of cities, and that's that's been going on now, not just since 9-11, but, but most notably maybe since 9-11, where space and uh, access is even further restricted in the name of security. And then the media uh, will then not cover it partly because they'll say they, they don't have access, but the fact is they don't exactly knock themselves out trying to get access. In many cases, they will listen to what the government says, and that'll be the story. And, and that is often the case, and that certainly was the case with 9-11. Uh, not 9-11, well, 9-11 itself, but, but the, the uh, invasion of Iraq, that was a top-down story that most of the media uh, did, basically daily stenography of writing down what was said, which is the public service to know what they're saying. That's relevant to history and to the public needs to know that. But the, we all know that there was a significant lack of critical reporting. And when you go back to the other times, it turns out all the other so-called good old days, when you look closely, were not so good. I mean, in the case of civil rights you know, black. There were 2,000 plus black report, black newspapers in America, and they were covering every lynching. Uh, the New York Times didn't have a bureau in the southern part of the United States until 1947, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, it was only the Brown decision in '54, the Emmett Till murder in '60, and sorry, in '50, 50, '54, and then '55, and then of course Martin Luther King's emergence in the mid '50s, and the confrontation with hoses and 
the Bull Connors of the world where that made a great story because conflict always is a fun and, and exciting story for the media. It makes it simple and cartoonish, uh, this group against that group. And Birmingham, where the initial problems occurred, there had been riots and bombs for 20 years. It was called Bombingham to a lot of people and most of the national audience in America uh, and most of the media had never covered that very closely, frankly. And so how much we know and when we know it and how deep we know it, deeply we know it, and, and all that has always been a problem, I suspect. I mean, I'm, again, I've only looked in the last half century, but it, you know, this book could have been easily been two or three times longer. Oh, yeah. And the first draft was uh, 60,000 words longer, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I, so, uh, I do think the, the Occupy movement was essentially created as a national phenomenon by the media covering police pepper spraying people in the face in, in New York mm. City. Uh, but to the extent that they covered the movement and the protest, it was always from the point of view of the uninvolved citizen who, whose drive might be disrupted or who might be uh, annoyed by the, the the protesters who smell bad. It was never the way that it is when it's Iranians or, or or it's a protest in Hong Kong that's happening now. It's it's where does that perspective come from that the U.S. media is is always against those exercising their constitutional First Amendment rights? Well, be, the re, the way the way that happens is the, the media ha, has to be, has always been and to some extent has to at least be in touch with those in authority and those in authority control access. Uh, when there's a large demonstration, where do they get their crowd estimates? It used to be they would ask the government what the crowd estimate was, and if it was something the government was embarrassed about, of course, the numbers would be suspect, and then the media would actually have to do their own research with a concept. And so basically a, a deference to power and whoever says in official them what is happening, generally that's the story. And that's the news and the the natural, the not natural, but it's certainly historic uh, way news is covered. It's what those in officialdom say and what ordinary citizens think is very nice. They'll do a poll, but, you know, they will not, you know, and the poll will be useful and they talk to a thousand people if they can get them on the phone anymore. But, you know, the uh, media, especially national news media or covering in a state capital, for example, they're basically tethered to those in power and what occurs there. And that defines the news unless there's a natural calamity like a tornado or some other incident that is a natural occurrence where, but you still need then, you need the firemen and the morgues to tell you how many dead bodies there are. So you're still tethered to those in officialdom telling you something. And I'm not, that's not an excuse because obviously they're frequently incorrect. Either they just have a mistake that they've made with their numbers or worse, they have an agenda. In that situation, we are the we are the ones who suffer because we get false information pervaded by the so-called fourth estate that's supposed to be a neutral observer watching all those in power, which is a nice idea, but it doesn't always happen. The father of the Constitution, James Madison, fourth president of the United States. Yes, that's right. James Madison is known as the father of the Constitution. And he warned us about war, about the effects of war internally within the United States, the impact of war against us, and how unscrupulous politicians could use war to benefit themselves and how that could hurt us. I mean, here he is explicitly saying that war is an enemy of liberty, of our liberty. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Listen to this warning from the father of the Constitution, warning us that crooked politicians could use war to our detriment. 
of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debts and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. In war, too, the discretionary power of the executive is extended. Its influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied. And all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. The same malignant aspect in republicanism may be traced in the inequality of fortunes, and the opportunities of fraud growing out of a state of war, and in the degeneracy of manners and of morals engendered by both. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Those truths are well established. They are read in every page which records the progression from a less arbitrary to a more arbitrary government, or the transition from a popular government to an aristocracy or a monarchy. That's what Madison warned. How long are these wars going to continue? Now back to Charles Lewis being interviewed by David Swanson. We're speaking with Charles Lewis, whose book is 935 Lies, The Future of Truth and the Decline of America's Moral Integrity. You, you describe in the book some of your efforts, uh, successful at times, efforts to get stories that challenged power out on 60 Minutes and through other outlets. Uh, ha- to what extent has the media, in particular the TV network media, declined since you were at 60 Minutes? Well, uh, yeah, I was there. I left in, uh, way back, you know, a long time ago, 35 or so years ago. I left in 2008, the end of 08. And at around that period, uh, no, not 2008, <laughs> sorry, ni- 1988. There, uh, that, sorry. The math works better, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Max, yeah sorry about that. Uh, 1988, and so what? 36 uh, years ago. Uh, now, at that period in time, the apogee, the, the highest number of employees at TV network news operations, it was in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. However, starting in the mid to late 80s, the network started to retrench. They their audience was starting already starting to slip, and they were already uh, starting to recognize advertising revenue as a result was going down. And they also had voracious uh, CEOs wanting to make you know astonishing profits. Um, and so, in the case of CBS, Lawrence Tish, who owned uh, he owned the principal owner of CBS, and also happened to be one of the major owners of a tobacco company, uh, decided to fire 450 CBS employees, 25 percent of the of the, of the network. And back in the 80s, uh, the early 80s, uh, CBS had 28 bureaus covering the world. And by today, something like today, we're around five bureaus, I think, on planet Earth outside the U.S. Um, so the decimation of the capacity uh, for all these TV news shows um, is pretty pretty grim. When I was there you, at 60 Minutes, you produced four stories a year. Now the producers do six stories a year. Well, if you have less time uh, to do a story, you're generally not going to do as good a story. And that means you're going to do book, so-called book reports where you interview the author uh, for a 60-minute segment that, you know, it, the good news for the author is it goes to millions of people. The bad news is it's a one-interview story that you could have done in a week, <laughs> you know, instead of three to four months, which is how long the stories used to take. So uh, that is happening across the board. Um at all the uh, at all the TV networks and in television in general, local TV, of course, as we all know, is pretty pathetic. 
They accept a lot of paid programming. The number one source of news in America is actually local TV. We all know that sports, weather, the latest murder, car accidents, uh, that's generally the sensational fare that is offered up as local news. And uh, less than 1% of their news is actually about (coughs) politics, (laughs) which is really irritating, uh, to put it mildly, because they're getting wealthy from political ads, uh, which have soared through the roof. And so if you want to get heard as a politician, you've got to buy ads on their stations, which is one of the reasons we have seen an explosion in the cost of our campaigns in the country. So there's all these uh, seismic kind of um, systemic problems that to go very deep that help explain what has happened to the media. That's just the financial end of the numeric issues of if you have fewer bodies, you have less coverage. Yeah. We have today the same number of reporters in America covering those in power in the U.S. as we did in 1972, the year of the Watergate break-in. The problem is we've added 100 uh, million people and the federal budget has gone up 18 times. So what needs to be covered is obviously far more complex and far more extensive than it was 40 years ago plus. Um, and the number of people is is just woefully inadequate. And that that's not the only problem, obviously. But if you already have fewer reporters and more people, um, who's going to do all this research and reporting? Yeah, it's it's not just fewer, though. It's it's, it's a choice right. of perspective okay. taken well, as well, yeah, right? It's a simplicity that sets in. We, you got fewer people and you're on the run. People on local TV sometimes do four or five stories a day. Yeah. Uh, also, the new media forums, if you've got to do uh, two or three tweets that day and you've got to do radio piece as well as local tv piece you're going to basically dumb down everything sound bites went from 40 seconds uh 20 25 30 years ago today they're less than eight seconds how how what can you say of any substance or merit for five six seconds like nothing I, I, I made a comment, I think, three years ago about how surveillance drones might violate our Fourth Amendment rights, and I read it this week in a in a CNN story that acted as if they'd spoken to me and put me on the side of opposing searching for a possible murder victim's body with surveillance uh. drones when it was a completely unrelated topic and something I had said years ago, and I never they never talked to me. Is that how? I don't think that's how it was always done. No, that's that's offensive and and. Actually, incredibly unethical on their part, especially if they placed you in the middle of a current controversy they that did. you weren't even consulted about. That's just unprofessional, and whoever did that probably should be fired. Or at least in the old days, that's how you would expect something like that to happen. Yeah. There there are other influences as well. Of course, we've read just in the recent weeks about this former L.A. Times reporter, now AP reporter, who was running his stories by the CIA, getting getting their okay. I mean, we've we've known about this CIA in the media problem for quite some time. Is it it doesn't come up in your book? Is that something you ever ran into? Uh, I I mean, I'm aware of it. And, you know, there are things I'm aware of that I, it, I one of the problems with those kinds of the kinds of things we're talking about is it's very elusive to have any proof like you know there are things you hear like at the water cooler or over lunch or in a in a bar or something uh, talking to people when they look, kind of get, let their hair down they're a little more candid but it's hard I'm a document guy I don't know if you noticed but I, I'm very a lot of what I did hundreds and hundreds of footnotes uh, source notes I'm very into authentication of these things but um, I certainly am aware the major media one of the issues in Washington, of course, is access journalism. And um, when you cover, uh, there's only uh, back in, well, roughly 15 to 20 people at most cover national security in the United States full time as a job that, you know, a professional paid job that's in a country of 320 million people. So first of all, we don't have enough reporters. 
But second of all, uh, getting an original story that is not somebody testifying about intelligence issues on the Hill, which is a public, sometimes a public hearing, not always. Um, it's just a very, very difficult thing to cover. Uh, bureau chiefs of major media outlets have been known to, and uh, that includes the major uh, so-called elite newspapers, to uh, to talk frequently uh, to, including the editors, not just the reporters, to uh, folks in the highest levels, uh, from the White House, including the president, sometimes all the way down to uh, uh, to you know FBI directors, CIA directors, uh, cabinet secretaries, national security advisors, and you know whoever wins in November. In Boston Bay, to the Mexican Gulf, all the papers will say, the people have spoken and shown us their will, from the Great Plains of Wyoming to the Capitol Hill. Whoever wins in November, the moon it will rise, and the mothers will be to the sound of the cries. Of the kids in their mansions And the kids in their shacks Farm workers will toil With the sun on their backs Whoever wins in November The frat boys at Yale Will all toast to democracy And tell many a tale The bombs will keep falling The flags they will wave Cheer on their new leader, the latest corporate slave. Whichever face he has on We will build a new world And set us all free Once we drive the whole lot of them Right out of D.C. Whoever wins in November And now, messages from Access Sacramento 